traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking a leading writer how to remember the past in the digital present. Following the deaths of those close to us, it's very natural to feel a desire to untangle the sticky web of our family trees and better understand who we are and where we've come from. When Maria Stepanova, one of Russia's most celebrated contemporary authors, inherited her aunt's treasure trove of family belongings, she decided to do just that, and it gave her the material for her latest book, In Memory of Memory. In it, she arranges a puzzle of centuries-old letters, diaries, faded photographs and long-forgotten souvenirs, all piecing together the history of her middle-class Jewish family and how their lives, loves and sacrifices fit into the greater narrative of Soviet Russia and a Russia today where so many alternative views of the official story are excluded. In Memory of Memory was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize, and though the grand award went to the French writer David Diop, Maria has joined only a handful of her countrymen to earn a nomination, while also touching a nerve far beyond Russia about where memory and the echoes of family and the past fit into our own lives in the busy age of digital technology. I spoke to Maria from her home in Moscow on a slightly fuzzy Zoom line, so our conversation this week comes with our apologies for less than perfect audio. But as a writer, she'll tell you that it's the words that are the most important thing. Maria Stepanova, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much. It almost seems that you were a bit disappointed to discover your family was ordinary, or at least you you suggest that, although I wonder if that's true to a Western eye when, when we look at the lives that they lived. And you write this, everyone else's ancestors had taken part in history, but mine seemed to have been mere lodgers in history's house. They lived in and outside Russia, they went into exile, they fought in the siege of, of Leningrad uh, in a couple of cases. Not really so ordinary. What, what made you think of them that way? The period of my utmost disappointment belonged to the time when I was 10 or 12, when we were brought up, we were living in this mood of striving for some heroic goals. We didn't choose the goals. That was something the state was creating for us. But still, every half a year on the 1st of September or on the 9th of May, the Victory Day in Russia, some veterans were brought over to our schools and they were telling stories. Now I understand that the stories were especially designed for the children. They were tolerable so we could live on with them. But still, all these glorious veterans clinging medals, and there was nothing of the kind in my own family. And I kept asking questions, hoping for some scrap, and there was none. All the stories my mother was able to tell me were slightly dissatisfactory. But still, I was intensely curious about that very 
quality that made my ancestors so interesting, but yet so different. This quality, this interest was something that never ceased. I wonder if you would give us a flavour of the book. And the part that I think we we might share with our listeners is when you start writing and, and what you want to do when you start writing, but also what you want to stop doing, because I think that gives us a very interesting way of looking at the entry point that you've taken into the theme of memory. I would become a stranger, a teller of tales, a selector and a sifter, the one who decides what part of the huge volume of the unsaid must fit in the spotlight's circle and what part will remain outside it in the darkness. The sense that the writer sifts and selects isn't, of course, particularly new. It's something writers have done since they first picked up the the quill pen, or let alone sat down at a a laptop. But there is a particular context here, and it is Russia over many decades and through the extraordinary journey of recent Russian history. And there's a quote from your family memory, which is this, show everything, hide everything, preserve it forever. Can you just unpack a bit what lies behind that? All the history, the entire history of the 20th century is tragic. It amounts to a number of catastrophes, not only in Russia, but elsewhere, everywhere. I really consider that every living human nowadays is a survivor of this huge catastrophe. And what is so special about the Russian situation is two things. The first one, we didn't have one huge catastrophe. We are building our known world around, but a sequence of them something, a kind of a corridor. You're entering a room and then the ceiling falls down uh, on you and you are getting out of it, trying to cope, entering the next fragment of space and the same thing happens. So after a while, you're getting used to the sensation. It is becoming some sort of a norm. The Russian universum is slightly different because any form of non-catastrophic life is something we are only getting acquainted with for the first time in many, many decades. The second thing is the way of treating history, because it is two-dimensional and deeply ambiguous at its core. For some 70 years at least, we were having this grand law of official history, and uh, deep underneath, there was this smallish flow, this tiny source of different memory that was mostly kept in the families. And they were not contradicting each other. They were parallel. And so living with this ambiguity, holding in mind, keeping in mind both narratives, I think it was changing something in the Russian perception of reality. When you say you portray recent Russian history is a series of lurches, sometimes one catastrophe or terribly challenging set of circumstances to another. Could you just give give us a sense of where that most impacted your own family when you were looking through these fragments, the memories of memory that you explore? I really suspect that the main thing is not about the events happening. It is about the possibilities. You are never safe enough, stable enough. You are never treating your own reality as something 
reliable. There is a hard background to live with. We were living generation after another against this backdrop of history that is always going to explode and to bury you. I think that the fear and the possibility of something worse to happen is a crucial aspect that is standing beneath the design of my family and the way they prefer to live their lives. They had different responses to you excavating the past. And some people presumably were quite happy to feel that this was particularly for a new generation being resurfaced. This is all being put together after the end of communism, another uh, one of those great epochal moments in Russian life. But there were also those close to you who didn't like it so much and sort of almost distrusted the idea of, of being condensed. Tell us a bit about that. I wanted to write down by my own hand to type them into my laptop. The numerous letters, hundreds of them, that the members of my family had written during the last century. The corpus of this letter writing, this epistolary universe, it starts at the late 19th century and is going on to the late 80s. I had a feeling that I have to start speaking with their voices because I, I didn't really feel I have a right to be entering, to be mingling with their lives. And uh, to start doing this, I had to acquire this quality of voice. I had to learn their languages, the language of their nowadays, the language of their contemporary times. And so I've just typed in everything I could lay my hands on, including my father's letters from the 1960s. He was working at Baikonur, the building of one of the greatest Russian space stations. The letters he had sent home to his parents are simply enchanting. They are chitty, they are witty, they are lovely. And they have this distinctive flavor of the optimistic 1960s. I felt that I have my full right to use them because my father never refused me anything. I just dropped him a line in WhatsApp asking if I can use his letters. Mm -hmm. And he was silent for a couple of days which is pretty abnormal for our relationship. And then he wrote me a very ceremonious letter asking me to meet him at Skype. And then he told me that would I be so kind not to include his letters because it was so different. And he would hate feeling that anyone would perceive him like this letter writer. I don't want anyone to think I was like that. It was heartbreaking because... Those are lovely letters, and uh, I would love to use them. But of course, I would never, well, trespass. I understand that it is a serious matter. But still, it, it gives me some kind of a epiphany um, about the very way we are quitting the dead. We are using whatever is remain of them. In this, uh, you know, easygoing, breezy way, as if we are not supposed to pay anything for it. And I don't mean the, 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 the money aspect. What I mean is we, we are using their memories, their photographs, their, their stories, their facial features, as if they were common public domain. In my opinion, there is something to think over and over again. 
because what we want are our legacies, however small, to be used in this easy way. Tell us a bit about your own life, because you've been a strong critic of the, the Putin government and its effects on cultural life. And you also run a, a cultural website, which you would say has, in, in Russian terms, small l, liberal inclinations. And yet you stay in Russia. Your parents emigrated to Germany in the 1990s. Why do you stay in Russia? Well, you, you've been in Russia at the same time. So you, you remember the flavor. It was wildly interesting. It was endlessly exciting. And one had a feeling that everything is just beginning. And there is such a lot of tremendous thing to be a witness to. After that, I've been considering and reconsidering my first decision. But still, I've got soft spot for my country. Not because I am trying to compete this, or with this brand of patriotism that it is now producing for the mass market. But still, someone has to love this country. I'm not actually an activist, but nowadays any normal activity in Russia is starting to become more and more like activism. So it is hard to, to differentiate uh, um, what I'm doing is such, a, such, an ordinary, such an ordinary activity. I'm just editing a cultural web site. Uh, nothing special. Uh, well, it, it's a good website and I'm quite proud with it. There is nothing brave about it. Do you, do you feel you're taking a risk to do so? No, no, no. And uh, I've been constantly asked about that. No, I don't think so, because we're not living or working at the front lines. But the problem is the logic behind uh, the decisions of the state. You are unable to make any kind of a forecast who is going to be jailed next. And how important is what has happened with Alexei Navalny in that case? That's probably the most prominent case read about, reported on in the West. What do you take from it as a lesson? The outcome of the whole story is totally heartbreaking and uh, I don't really know what to do with it. Alexei Navalny was building his public image. Nowadays, he's becoming a figure that is larger than life. He is becoming a symbolic figure and it gives his life and his political line another dimension because he was wholly capable of staying in Germany. Still, his decision to come back and uh, to face this parody of justice, the Russian political trials are, he is going deep down to this ugly black and white underground world that is the Russian prison. Now we are eagerly waiting for him to come out. Whatever happens, again, it's not the time for predictions, but the idea of him consciously going for it, it, it well, it moves me. I've been at a number of different political marches. The ones that are maybe the most crowded are strangely not the ones that were accused by some abstract thing happening, important as they could be, like the pensions age getting raised, someone that drug drivers are going on strike, important, serious things like this. The most crowded rallies were the ones of compassion, the ones that were accused by some specific case that was so heartbreaking 
that people just couldn't resist. They couldn't stay at their homes. So they came out to the streets. It was this way with Navalny. I don't know what does it say about us. Maybe that we are much more compassionate than reasonable. But still, I think that Navalny is something where reason and compassion are meeting each other. When you look now to a new generation that's come of age since the fall of the Soviet Union, what are they interested in that maybe we both weren't so much? Well, my my, my own kid is 15. He belongs to this visual generation or a couple or a triple of visual generations we've been witnessing since 1990s. They give much more attention to, to the visuals. And uh, I've been actually dealing with the, with this problem a lot uh, because... I am a person who is addicted with writing, and I always feel that that the written story has a kind of priority for a number of reasons. But it is clear that to persuade my kid in doing something, I have to go and show him a couple of pics instead of sending him sending him a longish text about the beauties of Saint Petersburg. Just a couple of photographs you know, with neat captions. I have a feeling that it is pretty much the same for a couple of generations. And uh, I've been struggling with it for a while because we are trying to feed our kids exactly the same dishes, exactly the same habits. My own habit was, you know, reading under my bed cover with a torch, trying to get myself another half an hour of Stevenson or Tolstoy, whatever. And they are different in this way. But still, we have more empathy, I think, because my empathy when I was a teenager belonged to, to the literary heroes, not to, to my own family. And that is something I am trying to catch up with now when I am an adult. So where does that leave this generation politically? There's research by the Levada Centre, which is a research institute, showing that 18 to 24-year-olds are more likely to support Alexei Navalny, less likely to support Vladimir Putin. But he's looking to change the constitution to stay in power until 2036. And I wondered what that meant for younger Russians. A catastrophe, I suppose. Maybe that is the outcome of the completely fictional Putin's stability the newspapers and the state media was crying about for for years and, uh, and decades. So they are used to believing in a stable or so-called stable world. And they are so fed up with it. They are longing for something new. Do you think on the whole the West should be doing more to oppose Vladimir Putin, uh, the Kremlin? And, and if so... What's the direction of your thoughts? We tangle with this a lot at The Economist. I'm sure a lot of listeners do too, about what is useful, what's not useful, what should we advocate for? As they say on Facebook, it is complicated, yeah. Well, I suppose that uh, one of the main things, uh, sometimes all one wants is, you know, to break all the relations, uh, to let them, the troubled society, stay as it is, to stop talking. That's the worst thing I can imagine. Whatever happens with the sanctions. I think that this foolish old thing uh, called the cultural dialogue, it should move on because we cannot afford to lose ourselves, to lose each other behind the Iron Curtain for another 50 years. 
it would be intolerable. You're one of the few Russian authors in, in recent years to be nominated for the International Booker and, and make it onto those long and short lists. How significant is that for you? And is there a bit of a sense of literary patriotism that you feel you can allow yourself? Well, I would speak of language patriotism. And uh, yes, it means a lot to me that a book that is written in, in Russian is getting into the middle of this huge international or global conversation. In this respect, I think that my wishes are already fulfilled because the ever so important thing was to get into the shortlist. All the books on the shortlist are so amazing. I would be unable to choose for myself, but uh, it is a wonderful shortlist and it is very brave and I'm just happy to be a part of it. I'm thinking as we draw to a, a close, Maria, your book in memory has family trinkets, good old English word. There must be an even more beautiful Russian word for trinkets, which you could tell us in a moment. They're sort of vehicles for remembrance, aren't they? They're passed down to the generations. W- w- which would you take with you to commemorate the story of your own life or send into the world beyond your own time? That's a, that's a wonderful question. And, uh... Yeah, my my apartment is cramped with trinkets and tokens of our former life or lives. <laughs> it is, you know, there is this Russian word, birulki. That's the part of our game that was popular in the beginning of the last century. Birulki is a number of very tiny wooden sculptures depicting different household items plates, cutlery, china, tiny little things. And you're supposed to put them into a pile and then to extricate them one by one without disturbing the whole pile. In a way, that's wonderful that you reminded me of the whole thing because for me, it serves as a perfect metaphor of our memory games. That's what we are trying to do with our memorial writing trying to take this or that story without disturbing the, the decency of the deceased. Well, I've got a number of these birulki in my mind and in my apartment. I would vote for my grandmother's kitchen knife with a, a lola burnt upon the wooden handle. She used to use it in the late 30s, early 50s. In her, well, in everyone's kitchen in her communal apartment at the Pokrovsky Boulevard. And the kitchen was huge, uh, as well as the old flat that was inhabited by 10 or 15 families. I still remember it from the early 70s when I was a toddler. Of course, all the kitchen utensils, they were, well, highly popular and they could get stolen at any moment. So people do whatever they could to protect their property. And so it was written all over everything where you could write, could, could write upon. It was written Leola or Anya or uh, Ivanovi. When I was uh, maybe seven or eight years old, I kept, and we were living in an apartment of ours, uh, I kept asking, why why do you need to write your name upon the handle of, uh, of a knife? And then my mother explained, and the knife is still alive. And uh, well, it, it, it did a lot of traveling with us. It's going to take you into the next epoch of 
Russian political history, isn't it? It's, it's been through a lot and you're going to take it with you for wherever you go next. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Maria Stepanova. And thank you so much for the conversation and uh, I enjoyed every moment. And uh, well, I'm sorry for my clumsy English, but uh, well, it is what it is. And Maria kindly reminded me at the end of our conversation that it is what it is in Russian is что есть, то есть. Now, what personal trinket would you like to pass on down the generations? Mine is an outsized Lenin portrait, and yes, it's a long story. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And I'd love to thank all of you who sent in your recommendations for a jazz tune that sums up the world of hedge funds. We had some fantastic suggestions. Tom Gale emailed to say, Giant Steps by John Coltrane. As Tom put it, Perfect title for the times, perfect music for the times. While Stephen Catchpole plumped for the Herbie Hancock remaster of Adam's Apple. Hmm, niche there, Stephen. Stephen says the song reflects the turmoil of economic business and keeps up with the constant beat while going off on tangents. Don't say it's like the show, but thanks to everyone who wrote to us. My playlists are going to get a whole lot jazzier. If this episode has whet your appetite, then do visit our website to read our review of In Memory of Memory. And while you're there, why not subscribe for our best introductory offer to coverage of Russia, America and more beyond. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.